Well, good morning. Thank you for being here. If you'd open to Mark chapter 11, we are blessed that uh, Pastor Nate and his wife Becky have been leading us in worship for three services. Pray for them. They've had to sit through three sermons now, so uh, I'm sure they'll tell me which one was fantastic and which one not so much. But thank you for being here. We're going to get right to work because we have a lot to do in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is the beginning of what I would describe as the most important week in the history of the world. I realize that's a really big statement, but it is very true. The narrative of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is actually not the beginning of God's story. It's just the climax of the large, historical, redemptive story of this world. The story of God began in a garden, as you probably know, with our first parents who disobeyed God's word, and God cursed the world with death. And at the same time, he gave a promise of life, that a child would come one day and restore all things. But that wasn't the only promise that God gave. As you read the Old Testament, we see God gives many promises. He promised uh, really childless old man named Abraham, that he would become a great nation, that his children would be numbered like the sands of the sea or the stars in the sky. He promised that another prophet like Moses would come and he would speak truth. He promised that another high priest like Aaron would come and he would cleanse sin once and for all. And he promised that a king like David would rise and he would rule forever. And so the Gospels are really, could be titled, Promise Kept, because of the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. And all these promises, we know, were delivered to a particular people, the Jews, the Hebrews. They were the one who received the words of God from the prophets. And so they had every advantage, more than any other people. By grace, they had a very unique relationship with God. And in contrast to the world, they had a very unique relationship with one another. Now, in some ways, they were just like the world. They, too, were under sin. But unlike the world, they had been given a means to atone for it. Like the world, they hurt one another and they wronged one another. But unlike the world, they had been given a guide, how to deal with that, how to uphold God's justice in their community. But these advantages that they had actually became the very things that proved their undoing. The things that were provided to help them be more faithful were the things that actually perhaps caused them to be faithless. Now, When the promised prophet, and when that promised priest, and when that promised king actually walked into the temple in the person of Jesus Christ, they not only didn't recognize him, they murdered him. They missed everything that they were supposed to see. And while that was sad and and incredibly tragic, the most tragic and wicked evil that ever occurred, it didn't surprise God. In fact, The rejection of his son, the rejection of the Savior was expected, even planned, so that salvation could come to the world. As proof of this, after the resurrection, Peter and John were two of the kind of lead disciples. They were arrested for preaching and teaching about Jesus in the temple. 
And they were brought before a council, and the captain of the temple was there, and they were told, stop teaching in the name of Jesus, stop teaching about Jesus, and that's the famous passage they say, we're going to obey God and not men. They were eventually released, and they went into their friends, and they reported everything that happened, and everyone was joyful. And they were so joyful, they all together started saying the same thing. In Acts chapter 4, this is what they said. They were actually quoting part of the Psalms. And they said, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against his holy servant Jesus, whom he anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. What a powerful verse to reveal to us that every bad thing that happened to Jesus was planned ultimately by God. It didn't surprise God, even though it grieved God. And that includes the failure of the Jewish nation altogether. And to know that God planned for the failure of his own people, I pray brings you comfort to know that he actually planned for your failure too, and mine. That it doesn't surprise him, and that he has means to deal with it. If you want to look in Mark chapter 11, I'm going to read rather quickly the first chunk of chapter 11 and then tell you how all of these seemingly disconnected words are connected. Mark chapter 11 beginning in verse 1 says this, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, this being Jesus and his disciples, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll bring it back immediately. They went away, and they found a colt tied at the doorside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them, Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. They had cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing the distance of fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations? You have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. So let's try and put this all together. So the scene begins in, in verse 1 with Jesus' arrival on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. It is the first day of the week of Passover, the annual celebration of the Jews. If we take the gospel accounts as history, it seems as if Jesus has not celebrated the Passover for several years in Jerusalem. That's a special time. Most Jews wanted to celebrate it in Jerusalem, though they certainly could celebrate it in their own cities. And so every step along this way is very intentional. And right now he is in the place at the time and the hour that he wants to be. And so he sends his two disciples to find a cult, which seems kind of strange. They find one. And what this really does is represent a big shift in Jesus' ministry. Because up to this point, he's remained kind of below the radar. He has remained hidden. He's even told people to stop talking about him. He has withdrawn from crowds when they tried to make him king. And so he's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Well, this is a shift. When you get a cult and you get on it and you come into the city and allow crowds to praise you, he is going public with who he is in a very loud and tangible way, one of the few times that he actually does. This action, this particular action, is a deliberate fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy from the book Zechariah. And in that book, the prophet said this would happen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is doing something that is very prophetic, and very kingly at the time of David. Donkeys were a royal animal, okay? After King David, they switched to horses. And so this is a throwback, if you will, a pointing back to David, to the promise to David, and a full revelation and declaration that I am the king you've been waiting for. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah, the son of David. And so in honor of the king, they are throwing their cloaks down and they are throwing palm branches down into the road for the king to walk on. So this is the kind of text that would be preached on Palm Sunday, right? The triumphal entry at the beginning of the week and then we have Easter Sunday the following week. Well, they're using palm branches here and it's really important to understand why. Jesus is saying, this is who I am, fulfillment of Zechariah, and by them putting palm branches, they are actually saying, this is what we hope you do. And this is who we actually think you are. Now, in many ways, the entire scene is a replay of a famous historic event called the Maccabean Revolt. It had happened 150 years earlier when Syria was the occupying nation. The Syrian ruler Antiochus, who was a horrible ruler, had actually desecrated the temple of the Jews. And he had sacrificed a pig on the altar, which, if you know anything about the Old Testament law, 
pork is something that the Jews were not to partake in. It was an unclean food. So he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Then he made the priests eat bacon, which sounds wonderful to us, but horrible for them, right? So they couldn't do that. So that was a complete desecration of everything that the Old Testament worshipped. Now, the revolt had all kinds of battles and, and all kinds of things happened. It was uh, reminds me of the American Revolution. You kind of got this little band of guerrilla warriors with this very large army, and the band wins. So they throw off the oppression of the Syrians, and obviously Judas Maccabeus becomes very famous for leading that battle. And they come into Jerusalem, and they cleanse the temple of all its desecration, and they restore worship as it was originally designed. And so this successful revolt made Judas Maccabeus a hero. And so at the time, Jesus uh, like, is later celebrated today in things like Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is also an echo back to the same revolt when there was a miracle with oil in the temple, and, and that's a whole other connection to it. But at this time, they celebrate and they commemorate the Maccabean revolt in different ways. In one way, it would be used by palm branches. Because to commemorate the actual revolt years prior to this, uh, Judas had actually coined like coins and put palm branches on them. And Judas was known as the hammer, like Judas the hammer. So it was like his kind of wrestling name, right? Judas the hammer Maccabeus. And then he'd come out with some awesome music. So Judas the hammer is like who they're commemorating with the palm branches. So what you see is that the people are hoping Jesus is someone in particular. They're hoping that Jesus is the hammer, reborn, the one who's going to come in and throw off Roman oppression, just like Judas Maccabeus threw off the Syrian oppression. And that's not who Jesus is. But when they're singing, Hosanna, you know, glory to God, the blessed is the kingdom of David, like they have something particular in mind. They are saying Hosanna, which means save us, we pray, save us. They, they do want to be saved, but they don't fully recognize who Jesus is. So even though they kind of see Jesus, they don't really know who he is, but they see their situation very clearly. They are in a situation, politically, practically speaking, that they can't get out of themselves. And so they're like, here he comes, here's the guy that's going to do it, please save us. And ironically, them crying, save us, Jesus, is just what he's going to do. But he's not going to do it the way they think he will. The Hosannas are very appropriate to describe Jesus' saving work. But they, it doesn't actually describe Jesus' ways. You see, once Jesus enters Jerusalem, after all the hosannas, after all the excitement, the fanfare quickly dies down, the crowds get smaller, Jesus walks into the temple, and you can imagine people like, here he goes, he's going to make some declaration. It says he looks around and he leaves. How disappointing. Right? They're thinking, what? what? That's it? And we learn, I think, a very valuable lesson in that. For them, Jesus doesn't do what they fully expect he's going to do. What they want most of all. He's there, but he doesn't. He doesn't meet their expectations. 
Now, I won't ask for hands, but I'm guessing there's a few people in here that Jesus, at one point in your life, didn't meet your expectations. In fact, you may have been fully convinced of something. This is going to happen. Oh, this is all lining up. I can see what you're doing, Jesus. And like, wah, wah, and it totally goes to the right. Like, what happened? And so I want to assure you of something that may not be very assuring, but hopefully it'll be sobering. And that is, when your expectations of the Lord are not met, the problem is not with the Lord. It's with your expectations. Now, that's a great lesson. And Jesus does some other things we don't expect as he continues. He leaves Jerusalem, as I said, goes and spends time with his friends in Bethany, that'd be Lazarus, Mary, and uh, Martha, comes back, and he does something weird. If you read it carefully, like, that's just weird. So he does two things weird, really. He comes and he curses a fig tree, and he cleanses a temple. And they seem disconnected, but they're not. Now, this is a sight of Jesus, just step back for a second, that we're not used to seeing. If you ask the typical person, what's Jesus like? He's loving, he's kind, he's gracious. Like here, he's wrathful and angry. And in one part, angry at a tree. So he might feel like he's a little out there, or just easily irritated. Like, what is going on? And scholars are hilarious. The more liberal scholars spent all kinds of time almost apologizing for Jesus. Let me tell you why this doesn't really fit. It's probably not in the original text. Like, go crazy because this doesn't fit the mold that I want Jesus to fit in. Well, let me help us understand it. So the first event was the cursing of this tree, which is a weird thing. Mark makes some interesting observations. The first one he says is that Jesus is hungry. All right, so he's hungry. He says he sees a tree, a fig tree, in the distance. And he begins to walk to that fig tree. It's full of leaves. He can see it's full of leaves from the distance. And he comes up to it, and there's no fruit. And Mark makes a little statement. He says, it's not the season for fruit. Okay, so he shouldn't expect fruit, right? But that doesn't stop Jesus from seeing it and going, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And you're like, wow, Mike, I've had angry hunger before but like this is like a whole nother level like what is going on jesus why are you so mad at this tree that mark says isn't even supposed to have fruit don't you know jesus anything so he's not just irritated he's not just angry there is much more going on here than perhaps meets the eye so let me give you a little agricultural lesson if i will agriculturally speaking um, it isn't the season for figs, as in the full ripened fruit fig. It's spring. Summer is the actual time for fruit. Spring is the time when the leaves come, and something else comes at the same time. I'm just going to call it a prefig. There's actually a Hebrew name for it, but I didn't even try. So prefig, right? These little cherry-like prefigs that, that are edible, they will grow with the leaves, and occasionally they will fall off, or they will remain on the vine. If they remain on the vine, they will, in time, ripen to a fig. And those that are on the ground will just be eaten by passerbys. And so Jesus arrives in the spring to a very leafy fig tree 
that has no fruit. There's no fruit on the ground. There's no fruit on the branch. There's nothing. It is fruitless. And because it is fruitless in the spring, nothing on the ground, nothing on the branch, that means that when the fruit season comes, there's not going to actually be any fruit. And because there's no fruit at this time in the spring, it's likely there's never going to be fruit. In other words, it's a dead tree, a fruitless tree that is never going to produce, and it needs to be actually taken out and replaced. And so Jesus curses it. He says, no one eat from you again. Because the disciples hear it, and they move on, and he proceeds into Jerusalem. Weird. We'll come back to it. So then he starts to enter the temple, and ultimately he is going to, what is described as, cleanse the temple. And what is happening here is there's two kind of prophetic events, the cursing of the tree and the cleansing of the temple, that are actually teaching the same thing. So this, this metaphor is kind of going along, and we'll return to the fig when we leave or go outside of Jerusalem again. So as we know, Jesus enters the temple, begins to drive out all the money changers and all the traders and the people that are like, you know, doing business in the Gentile courtyard. So you have the temple, the holiest place, the holy of holies, there's like sections of the temple. The section he's at is called the Gentile court. Now, he has done this, scholars disagree a little bit, but he has likely done this twice. In the Gospel of John, it shows him cleansing the temple at the very beginning of his ministry. And then the other gospels show him cleansing the temple at the end. So I'm inclined to believe it happened twice. The first time is when he had like, you know, the, the cords and going, get out of here, right? And they all get out. This time he flips tables as he had done before and he pushes everyone out and he doesn't let anybody in. At least no one carrying anything. So he's not letting anyone doing any business coming in. And he begins to teach and what he does is say, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've made it into a den of robbers. And so Jesus is referencing a passage out of an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, and what Isaiah was talking about in that passage was the purpose for this court. And the purpose for the court, the main purpose of it, was to let Gentiles or non-Jewish people come and worship or pray to the one true God. So basically non-believers coming in to hang out or be close to the one true God. But the court is too crowded. It's full. That can't happen. Now, why is it so crowded? Well, it's Passover, as I said. And every Jew would like to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so literally millions of people are coming into the city to celebrate Passover, to purchase a Passover lamb, to have a Passover feast, to, to all these things. Well, you also were required as a Jew to pay the annual temple tax. But there was a particular currency that was preferred. And so they had to come in and actually exchange their money, these millions of people, in order to pay the proper tax. And so you needed a lot of money changers because there's a lot of people coming in to pay the tax and celebrate Passover. Now, if you're a businessman and you know that millions of people are going to be gathering in a certain place, exchanging all kinds of money, where do you want to set up your booth? 
right there. I put my lemonade stand right next to the money changer, right? Or my Passover balloon stand or streamers, whatever it was for the party. So everyone is selling everything there. Money changers are there. It is full and no one can actually come in to pray, to worship, to fulfill its actual purpose. And so in many ways, the whole evangelistic purpose of the court has been hijacked and the holy place has been turned to a marketplace. Now, Jesus, what he says is true. He basically says, you guys have screwed this up. And if the Jewish leaders had soft hearts and could receive the truth, had ears that could hear, they'd go, you're right. But their response to Jesus speaking the truth is, let's kill him. Let's destroy him. Now think about this, okay? So you have these Jewish leaders who pretty much have the Bible memorized. They like know everything. They know everything about the Messiah. They know what to expect. They're standing in the place of sacrifice, surrounded by all the things that are supposed to point you to the Messiah. And the Messiah is standing before them, and they do not see that this is the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. All the religion, all the stuff that was supposed to point them to Jesus doesn't. They may look alive. They have big crowds and big money and big stuff going on, but they're completely dead. And so let me just give, I guess, this little lesson from this. These guys are spiritual. These guys are religious. I mean, they are varsity-level spirituality. Which I would say many of us think we are. I know no one would admit that. No one would be like, that's right, I'm varsity right here. Division one spirituality. I realize you wouldn't say that. But just think about the spiritual rhythms you have that are unique maybe to you. The things that you do to connect with God. If you are truly, this is probably the worst word to use, but if you're truly spiritual and truly connected with God, two things should happen. Two things should increase. One, your affection for Jesus. Whatever you do, whatever Bible reading you do, whatever practices you have, your affection for Jesus should increase over time. That's spiritual maturity. I am more in love with Jesus than I was yesterday. I'm going to be more in love with him tomorrow than I am today. Increasing affection. And the second thing that should increase is your compassion for the lost. That's what should happen to the Jews. And they hated Jesus and didn't care about anybody who was lost. And so if your practices are not increasing your affection for Jesus... And maybe just increasing your criticism of all things Christian in the church, which I see a lot today in the world. If your spirituality isn't increasing affection, if it's not increasing your compassion, I would argue you are the very description of someone who is unfruitful. And unfortunately, as Jesus shows here, possibly subject to the judgment of Jesus. That's the kind of thing he judges. Now, 
we leave the temple and it kind of comes back full circle. We see the same fig tree, right? Peter walks by this fig tree and he's like, holy cow. And he says, it is withered down to the root, which would be a miracle because it's not even been a day, right? So it's not just like, oh, it's kind of wilted. It's withered to the root, the whole thing. So that's a miracle, clearly result of Jesus' judgment. So Jesus says something strange in response when Peter notices. He says, have faith in God. Have faith in God, Peter. Okay, that seems odd. But Peter, four days from now, it's not going to seem very odd because everything he knows about Judaism and everything he knows about Jesus is going to come crashing down. Everything he knows about faith is going to come crashing down to the point where he's going to deny Jesus three times, right? This whole world's going to come crashing down and he's saying, have faith in God because all this, even though it's going to be upside down, there's some truth that you're going to remember. It's going to come full circle for Peter after the resurrection, probably a little bit longer, where he finally sees what this whole fig tree and this whole Jewish thing was all about in the larger redemptive plan. So I'm going to tell you what it's all about, okay? And, and I'm going to go really quick and give you a lot of information. And I know when you first hear what I say, it's going to sound like someone giving a testimony where they start from like the very beginning, like, well, when I was one years old, I thought about Jesus. And you're like, oh gosh, this is going to be a long story if they're like seven years old and you're hearing the whole thing. So I'm going to go really fast. Ready? We'll start from the beginning. Don't freak out. Genesis. Right? We know the Garden of Eden. We know that there was a good God and we disobeyed, our first parents at least, in as our representative, disobeyed God's word, sin entered the world, death through sin, and then death came to all of us. In Genesis 3, this is recorded. Here's the moment it happens. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked because they were naked, literally. But there's something else going on here. And what does it say? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Hmm, that's interesting. Fig leaves. So, theologically, biblically, sin exposes us, right? That's what's happened here. They've been naked their whole lives. I don't know how long that was, but for a long time, and then suddenly they feel something. Well, guess what? When they sinned for the very first time, they felt guilt and shame. They felt guilt and shame. Never felt that before. And their response to feeling guilt and shame was, I need to hide. I need to hide from God. I need to hide from everyone else. And what do they do? They take fig leaves and they cover themselves. Now, fig leaves are pretty big, but they ain't that big. And I don't know how good a seamstress Adam and Eve were, but I, you get my picture. They weren't very well covered. That's why they're hiding behind bushes, even though they got fig leaves on. Okay? Now, there's something else going on here. No matter how big their fig leaves were, like they may have been able to cover themselves physically, but there's no way they could actually cover their spiritual nakedness. That was impossible. They couldn't hide their sin if they wanted to. Not from God, even if they could from one another a little bit. We do the same thing, right? Nakedness. 
And so God, after confronting them in their sin, because it's not like he can, can't see it, what does he do? He actually replaces their coverings. He makes them coverings out of the skin of animals, which implies that he sacrificed something, shed some blood to cover their sins, and gave them what would be more permanent, semi-permanent, better than fig leaf coverings to cover their nakedness. Okay, so our problem is nakedness. Then we continue. Abraham, you're the chosen, right? Man of faith. I'm going to make you a promise. You got no kids. You going to be a lot of kids. Father Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, right? God makes a people. That people finds themselves in slavery in Egypt, right? They are redeemed, led by Moses, brought to a mountain, and they're given the law of God. Well, what's the law of God? Guess what? It's a big fig leaf. God gives them the law, and what does the law provide? Along with this tabernacle and all these sacrifices, it provides a way to cover sin so they can have relationship with God. And it's something they have to do every year, sometimes every day, depending on what the sin was. So sacrifices for sins were made, and sins were covered, and as time went on, that nomadic people with a portable tent, and the tent was holy of holies, right, holy place, and then there was a court. Eventually, that tent became a permanent temple. It was shaped the same way, but it was a little bit bigger, and it was permanent. And the Matic people became a nation under a king. And they had the temple and the sacrifices, and they fulfilled everything that God wanted them to do. And this big fig leaf covered them temporarily, but perpetually. Now, the original tabernacle was pretty small, the first temple, which was eventually destroyed, was twice as big. The second temple, which was rebuilt, the one that Jesus is in right now, was twice as big as the first. It's huge. So think of it as like a little church plant, and then a church, and then a mega church. And you look at that and you're like, wow, those guys are spiritual. It's big, big crowds, big money, big everything. But it was empty, emptier than it had ever been, deader than it had ever been, so much so they couldn't recognize the Savior when he walked into it. By appearances alone, they seemed fruitful. There was big leaves on the tree, but there was no fruit. So here's what had happened. The Jews had come to idolize the leaves more than they did the fruit. This is why in the Old Testament, God's like, I'm so sick of your sacrifices. They stink to me. So you're the one that commanded them. It wasn't the sacrifices that were the problem. It was the people bringing them. The hearts behind them weren't there. They were just going through the motions. You could say the same thing about Christians today. No Christians here, I'm sure. But those other Christians out there, right? More excited about the leaves than they are the actual fruit. Well, God wasn't impressed. And so he had, through Jesus, right, cursed this tree. He would curse the temple in Jerusalem in the same way. Forty-ish years later, guess what? He took the Roman general. He came in, starved out the city, and destroyed it completely. And there wasn't another sacrifice made on that altar ever since because it no longer exists. He did the exact same thing he did to the fig tree, he withered it to its roots and he took out the very core, so much so that the Jewish system no longer exists at all. 
What he did, though, was ultimately remove something that pointed to something else. He removed a shadow that had always intended to point to something greater. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us. He replaced the tree, if you will, with a tree that bare fruit, really connected to the same vine. For since the law, it says in Hebrew, was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What he says is, this was never intended to be permanent. That's why they went back every year. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to. They could do it once and be done. But it says they kept going. They would have ceased to have been offered if it would have cleansed them, but they wouldn't have to need a sacrifice for sins. But the sacrifice is a reminder every single year that you're sinful. They would go back, I'm sinful. He's like, look, the blood of bulls and goats, it doesn't take away sins. God just said this will cover it temporarily. What was needed was the lamb to take away the sins of the world once and for all. What was needed was a priest to come in and actually cleanse sins once and for all. Enter Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Ultimately, he gives us a covering for our nakedness. He makes us righteous. God's plan, right, meant faithlessness led to faith and through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he says, I'm going to make this covering permanent, not temporary, and comprehensive. We're no longer clothed with our own fig leaves, though people try, pretending they're righteous, pretending they're not shame or guilt. I'll just have a little leaf here. And again, we can fool each other. Sometimes we use the big leaf of religion. Woo! Wrap that baby around me. I am pious. You don't fool God. You don't fool God. All of our nakedness is ultimately clothed through faith in the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus when you're in, hidden in Christ. This is why he says in the second part of that Hebrews passage that we have confidence to enter the holy places. That's, lang that's temple language. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that's through the flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, Jesus accomplished what all the rules of the law never could. The rules of the law could tell you how sinful you were. It could tell you how to cover your sins like temporarily, but it could never produce righteousness and take care of it permanently. And that is what the gospel does. And then the law, it doesn't just go away. It gets written in our hearts. And what's the summary of the law? Jesus said it was to love God and to love people. So if that's written in our hearts, guess what's produced in us naturally from our hearts? A love of God and a love of for people. That's a pretty simple faith, and it's no wonder when Jesus tells Peter, have faith, there's two things he begins to characterize as that faith. One is prayer, and one is forgiveness. One has to do with your relationship with God, and one has to do with the relationship with one another. Intimacy with God, love of God, 
relationship with God, communication with God. Reconciliation with our friends and our family and even our neighbors. Forgiveness for those who have hurt you, even your enemies. That is what characterizes someone who understands the gospel. The question is, when someone, or if you just ask yourself, tell me about the fruit in your life. Is prayer and forgiveness where your mind goes? My connection with God and my compassion towards people? I think our minds often go to other leads that we think are more impressive. And I'll tell you that there's nothing more, quote, impressive than prayer and forgiveness. A disposition of love towards your heavenly Father and a disposition of love towards other people. Jesus said that he is the vine in John 15, and whoever abides in him actually produces fruit quite naturally. It just comes out of you. Faith in Jesus, right, connection to the vine is what produces fruit like Jesus. And it's not to be admonishing or rebuking, but it is to be a warning that a leafy, like leafy, woo, that's a pretty, pretty vine, but fruitless Christian life is not what God desires. He desires a life of faith that produces fruit. And if there's no fruit in your life, I mean that kind of fruit, regardless of the other leaves you think need to be there, if there's not the kind of fruit that Jesus talks about, you're either still naked or you've forgotten that you were cleansed by your sins. So I'm just going to read this last passage out of 2 Peter, which Peter is the guy who provided Mark all his information, more than likely. And Peter has a few words to say about fruit. And it's really important to understand this passage, because if you read this passage, it's very simple to understand, but it can be really twisted. So the very beginning says this, His divine power, God, has granted to us all things. That means what it means. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, those promises, not what you do, you become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world of sinful desire. Okay, God's given you everything freely, by grace. And you're like, I've got it all. What does he say, verse five? For this reason, because you got it all, make every effort. So why aren't we making the effort? We're not making the effort to get it all because we already have it all, so we're just believing we have it all, and now we're responding to that. So we're making every effort to supplement that faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge of self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. That's good fruit. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or what? Unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities, if we don't have them, it's because we're nearsighted or blind and forgotten that we've been cleansed from our sins. You've begun to believe that you're supposed to do something that has already been done in Christ. Therefore, brothers, Peter ends, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election 
For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What a great promise. For in this way, there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And isn't that where we want to go? Stay connected to Jesus. Don't get captivated personally or by the leaves of other people or other things, but hold tightly to the fruit of Jesus that comes through faith in Jesus.